Well, a, uh, a pastor named uh, John Simmons tells about a grade school class that was putting on a, a Christmas play, which included the story of uh, Mary and Joseph coming to the inn. Um, and in that class was one little boy who wanted so very much to be Joseph. But when the parts were handed out, his biggest rival was given that part, and he was assigned to be the innkeeper instead. Now, he was really bitter about this. So during all the rehearsals, he began to, to plot how to get even with his rival. And finally, the night of the performance, Mary and Joseph came walking across the stage. And they knocked on the door of the inn, and the innkeeper opened the door and asked them gruffly what they wanted. Joseph answered, we'd like to have a room for the night. And suddenly, the innkeeper threw the door wide open and said, great, come on in, and I'll give you the best room in the house. Now, that, of course, wasn't in the script, and for a few seconds, a poor little kid didn't know what to do. But finally, the young Joseph had an idea. He stepped up to the innkeeper and looked beyond him through the door that represented the inn and, and made a big production of looking both right and left. And he stepped back out beside Mary and said, no wife of mine is going to stay in a dump like this. Come on, Mary, let's go to the barn. <laughs> so there are times when life does not go according to plan, right? When you know what the script ought to be, but somebody or something changes the lines on us. And, and oftentimes, these sorts of changes in our life cause grief, right? Because change is a reminder that things are not the way that they once were. Now, maybe change is brought on by the death of a loved one or family or friends moving away, or a struggle with divorce, or a loss of employment, or a troubling diagnosis, you know, whatever brings on change, it can become even more difficult to deal with, especially around the holidays, because Christmas can be a reminder that things in our lives didn't turn out quite how we expected. You know, the picture that we sometimes have in our minds about what our lives should look like around the holidays, sometimes doesn't match up with reality. And while everybody else is singing, it's the most wonderful time of the year, we feel more like singing Blue Christmas instead. So if that's you this morning, my word of hope to you is, that's okay. And not only is it okay to allow yourself to grieve, but in addition to that, grief that is brought on by any kind of life change can be one of the ways that God allows us to experience the hope of Christmas in a much more profound way. Because grief around the holidays can actually enable us to see beyond all the lights and the music and the hustle of the season and actually more deeply grasp the hope that Jesus came to bring. So if you're here this morning and you find yourself in need of some hope, in the midst of what otherwise might seem to be like a hopeless situation, then you've come to the right place this morning. You know, even if you don't find yourself in that place this morning, my prayer is that this sermon would strengthen your faith so that when trouble and hardship do come in your life, that you'll be able to stand firm in your faith. In our reading from Isaiah this morning, we find a word from God to His people who found themselves in, in what appeared to be a hopeless situation. So go ahead and open your Bibles up to 
Isaiah chapter 40. Um, if you don't have your Bible with you, you've got them in your pews in front of you. Um, and uh, as Bob said, this is a long passage of Scripture, uh, but as we dig into it, um, I think we'll find a lot of hope in it. Um, so we're just going to walk through that passage this morning, because these are timeless words uh, that many of us have likely heard before. Uh, but when we understand the people that they were first spoken to and the situation they found themselves in, they become even more meaningful uh, than they already are. Uh, so let me just set the stage for you uh, for this passage. Uh, last week, we, we talked about King Ahaz and his dilemma with, with the two kingdoms north of his who, who posed a threat to his throne and how God sent Isaiah uh, to speak a word of both encouragement and warning to him, you know, encouragement that God was with him, and warning that if he did not trust in God, that he would fall. And instead of trusting in God, Ahaz puts his trust in the Assyrian Empire, which was the military superpower of the day. And this is just one of many faithless decisions made by the kings of Israel and Judah, which eventually led to the destruction of both the northern and the southern kingdoms. And this is where we actually pick up Isaiah 40. The northern kingdom had been destroyed uh, sometime before this by Assyria, and now, because of their continued unfaithfulness to the God of Israel, God had allowed the southern kingdom of Judah, along with Jerusalem, the holy city of God's people, to be destroyed by a new military superpower uh, that had entered the scene known as the Babylonian Empire, and you might have heard of them before. So when the Babylonians attacked the southern kingdom, beginning in 605 B.C., they attacked with such terrible force that by 586 B.C., hardly anything is left standing. Okay? Entire cities are burned, and the temple in Jerusalem has been dismantled stone by stone. And then similar to the oppressors before them, the Babylonians sent the people who were lucky enough to survive that attack into exile. And this meant essentially deporting people from their homeland to refugee camps, uh, near the capital city of Babylon. And the purpose of exile was to strip a person of their entire identity in order to assimilate them into the culture of the Babylonians. So for God's people, this, this meant not only giving up their way of life, but also facing pressure to give up their faith in the God of Israel and adopt the gods of their conquerors. So this is where we find God's people at the beginning of Isaiah 40, in exile, having been stripped of their homes, their wealth, their families, their place in society, and their sense of belonging altogether. So talk about changes, right? God had, had sent His people multiple prophets to warn them of their impending fall if they didn't trust in Him for their protection, and now they were utterly aware of their faithlessness and of God's judgment which had been poured out upon them at the hand of the Babylonians. Now, it's true that in our own lives, some of us may find ourselves in difficult situations of our own making. You know, maybe the, the hopeless situations we find ourselves in are a result of our own sin and going against God's will for our lives, and so we're experiencing the consequences of that. But then other times, bad things just happen for seemingly no reason at all. 
And it's in those moments that we are reminded of the fallenness and the brokenness of all creation. You know, the same forces of evil that are at work in our hearts are also at work in the world. And oftentimes, those forces of evil rear their ugly heads even when we do nothing to deserve it. And it's especially in those times when we wonder if God is still there and is still able to save. So when hardship strikes, regardless of whether we bring it upon ourselves or not, that is the question that comes to our minds. Is God still there? And is He still able to save? And that's the same question that was on the minds of God's people while they were in exile. And in the midst of what otherwise appeared to be a hopeless situation came a word of hope in Isaiah 40. Verses 1 and 2, comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and proclaim to her that her hard service has been completed and that her sin has been paid for, that, he, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. So God is saying, Jerusalem, your sentence is up. You, you paid the consequences for your faithlessness. And now God could have left his people there in exile. He could have simply said enough and not went any further. But in his boundless mercy and grace, God promises a restoration to his people in exile, which he didn't have to do. You know, God could have just given up on this faithless people, but he had other plans in mind. Verses 3 through 5, a voice of one calling, in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be raised up, and every mountain hill shall be made low. The rough ground shall become level, and the rugged places a plain. And the glory of the Lord will be revealed, and all the people will see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. So those hearing this for the first time would actually think of a, a road being prepared in the wilderness for an army. In those times, in order for an army to, to move their troops and, and all their equipment across the desert, a crew had to go before them to prepare a path for them to travel so God is, is saying to His people, prepare the way because I am coming to take you back from exile, to deliver you from exile. This is my word to you. And He's saying to the Babylonians, you took my people because I let you take my people. But you're done now and you're giving them back because I am coming back for them. The glory and the power of God would be revealed to all nations because in God's rescue of his people, he would prove that he is both willing and able to save. You hear that this morning, church? God is able to save. And not only is God able, but God is a whole lot bigger than whatever changes we are up against that are causing us pain and grief. Verses 6 through 8. All the people are like grass. And all their faithfulness is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and flowers fall because the breath of the Lord blows upon them. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of our God endures forever. So God is, is saying to his people through this prophecy, everything in this world is temporary. 
And that, that includes the, the mighty Babylonian empire, which is oppressing you right now, but they are like grass. And with one breath, I can wipe them out. But the one thing that is not temporary is my word. The one thing that is not changing is my word. And you see, the cool thing about Isaiah 40 is that these words were actually written well before the exile ever happened. So, so the, these words were already on paper before the exile happened, which means that despite all of these, these evil plans of humans, God had a plan for His people all along, and His word did not fail and did not change. In a field of grass, God's word is the only thing that will stand the test of time. Problems will come and go. Kingdoms will rise and fall, but God's word will stand forever. And this was proven when God sent King Cyrus of the Persian Empire, who defeated the Babylonian Empire in 539 B.C. At this time, God's people had been in exile for nearly 70 years. Generations had come and gone, and all God's people knew at this point was exile in Babylon. But in 538, after the Babylonian Empire had been defeated, King Cyrus of Persia made a decree that God's people could begin returning to their homeland. But get this, most of God's people, when they had the opportunity to go back to Jerusalem, actually chose to stay in what was formerly Babylon. They did, they did not return to Jerusalem because they had resigned themselves to exile and couldn't see a future beyond it. So they, they had kind of resigned themselves to this hopelessness of, of saying, well, you know, I guess this is my life now. I don't know. I guess God isn't able to save. I guess God isn't mighty. And so this just must be my life now. They couldn't see a future beyond it. And it was only those who had held on to the hope, the hope that we saw last week, Emmanuel, God is with us, who actually returned to Jerusalem. And it's that small group of people that we refer to as the faithful remnant. So this faithful remnant decides to return to Jerusalem, and over the, the next several decades, they begin to rebuild the temple and resettle that land that was once theirs. All right, so this, this small group of people that had held on to that promise returns to the land, and even though God's people may have returned home, the kingdom wasn't fully restored still, because Jerusalem still belonged to Persia, and eventually Persia would fall and be taken over by the Roman Empire. So it still didn't really belong to God's people. And this is where John the Baptist enters the story. And when John the Baptist quoted Isaiah, as he did in our gospel reading for this morning, prepare the way of the Lord, make all the, the mountains low and the valleys high, make a, make a level field. 400 years had passed when he spoke those words without a single word from God. No prophets, no messengers, just silence. What, what do you think God's people were thinking during that time? You know, God, you, you promised us a king. You, you promised us, the, you know, restoration of, of this, this kingdom. Where are you at? What are you doing, God? And sometimes we can feel like that in our own lives too, can't we? You know, when, when God doesn't seem to be answering, you know, when we're, when we're up against a situation when we're facing hardship in our lives and we, we look at what seems to be the silence of God, 
and we think, God, are, are you still there? Are you still able and, and, and mighty to save? Or have you given up on me? Have you given up on my situation? And the message that we hear through John the Baptist after those 400 years of silence is a resounding no. Because through John the Baptist, God says, I have not forgotten about you. That promise that I made all those years ago is still good. Your promised king is still coming. And of course, on the other side of the cross, we, we know our promised king has come in Jesus, whose coming we celebrate at Christmas. You know, of course, instead of a mighty warrior who had come uh, to restore God's kingdom by military might, Jesus, of course, showed a different kind of power in his coming. He, sh he showed the power of God to enter into the midst of our brokenness and to heal it. And he showed the, the kind of power of God that, that levels the playing field. Because we see at the foot of the cross, every valley is raised up and every mountain and hill is made low. And we all stand on level ground. At the foot of the cross, we find the healing that God sent His Son to bring. And we witness a power of God's kingdom, which Jesus brings into our lives. And so every time we experience the healing, the hope of Christ, that's when we know the light is still shining into our darkness. When we encounter this story of God working despite all of these years in between, and, and I'm sure what had to have been people wondering, God, where are you? What are you up to? What are you doing? We see the still small voice of God coming through, first through John the Baptist, and then in life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. The kingdom of God coming in a quiet way, and only those who had eyes to see and ears to hear were able to receive it. Now, so maybe this morning you, you find yourself in a place of what you feel is, is exile or, or waiting. You know, maybe, maybe you're not sure, kind of like the, the people in exile during that time. You're just not sure if God is, is willing or able to act. Maybe you've been facing a, a situation or, or maybe some sort of grief or change in your life that it just doesn't seem to be going away and you're wondering, God, where are you in the midst of this? And if that's you, God has a message for you at the end of chapter 40, verses 27 through 31, which says, why do you complain, Jacob? Why do you say, Israel, so these nations, my way is hidden from the Lord. My cause is disregarded by my God. So that's naming the fact that there were a lot of people who had given up hope and said, you know what, I guess God has just given up on us. And here's God's response. He says, do you not know? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He who doesn't grow tired or weary his understanding no one can fathom. We don't know God's timing. We don't know God's plan. But God does. God gives strength to the weary. Increases the power of the weak. Even use, it says use, people at their best grow tired and weary. Young men stumble and fall. Even the strongest amongst us, our strength has an end. 
but those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not be faint. So through Isaiah, God is calling us to possess a faith that doesn't allow our immediate circumstances to shake our trust in God. All right? So there's two ways that you can approach life. When, when a situation comes your way and you're facing this manifold change or, or grief in your life, you can choose to just simply focus on that one situation, not look at any of the other evidence around you and say, well, this must be my life now. Kind of like the people in exile who looked around them and all they could see was the power of Babylon and that their homeland was destroyed. They had no hope. And they said, you know what? I guess that just must be it. Because they looked at what was right in front of them. But then when we turn to God's Word and we hear these promises and we see evidence over hundreds of years of God's faithfulness, we see a very different story, don't we? Because we realize that this isn't just their story. This is our story. If we believe in Jesus, the story of the people of Israel is our story. So that means that we can say, I know that God has been faithful not only to me, but to my people. God has been faithful through all these years and fulfilled all of these promises. And no, I don't understand His timing. I don't understand how He's fulfilled all these things and when He chose to do it. I don't understand any of that because I am not God, but I'm at least willing to trust that God is God and I am not. I am going to choose to look beyond whatever it is that I am facing right now in my life and turn my eyes to Jesus. Fix my eyes on the cross. To stand on that level ground at the foot of the cross and say, God, I believe that you have something beyond whatever it is I'm facing. That you have a plan. That you are working all things together for the good of those who love you. I don't know how it's going to be fulfilled. I don't know when it's going to come. But Lord, we know that your promises are good. And that you're going to make good on them. And so that's where our hope is at especially during the season of Advent, because we know the end of the story. You know, that God wins, that Jesus comes back, and He sets things right once and for all. And until then, we can rest in the hope of knowing that Jesus has already claimed victory over this world on the cross. And that's what it means to hope in the Lord. You know, that even if the world seems to be falling apart around you, that you can stand firm on the foundation of God's Word. Because everything else in this life will come and go, but God's Word endures forever. And when you realize that, that your life is a small part of a much larger story that God has been writing for centuries, it changes everything. So this morning, church, my, my word of hope to you is to not resign yourself to exile. Don't lose heart. Don't lose hope. Don't be like the, the rest of the people who were not a part of the faithful remnant who looked at all the evidence around them and said, well, I guess that's it. I guess that's all there is. But be like that 
faithful remnant who in the face of exile, in the face of losing everything that was near and dear to their hearts, looked at the evidence around them and said, I choose to believe in the promises of God. I choose to believe not in what I see in front of my face right now, but in the promises that have been passed down through the ages. And we can choose the same thing and know that God will be faithful. In just a few moments, I'm going to invite you to um, come forward if you feel so led and light a candle that symbolizes whatever that thing is that you are dealing with, that, that change or the loss, the, the source of grief, whatever that is that you carry into this Christmas season. And not only do I want this candle to symbolize that for you, but I also want it to symbolize your willingness to place your hope in the Lord. You know, these four blue candles here represent grief, courage, memory, and love. But standing in the middle of them is one that represents the light that Christ came to bring into our darkness. In a moment, uh, Troy is going to play a song for us. And I want you to feel free to just take whatever time you need. But when you're ready, I want to invite you to simply come forward and to light a candle off of the Christ candle, just like this. And then you can just set it on the table where you found it. Okay? And I'd like these candles to be a sign of your willingness to place your hope in the Lord, in your faith that even now the light of Christ is shining into whatever darkness is present in your life. So this candle is a symbol of that hope. You're saying, God, I'm bringing my darkness before you, and I am shining the light of Christ into this situation of darkness. So that candle that represents that loss, that change, whatever that source of grief is, you're saying, God, I choose to let the light of Christ shine into that darkness. I choose not to fix my gaze on whatever that is, but I choose to fix my gaze on the light of Jesus that has come into our midst in this Advent season. So let's, uh, let's just prepare our hearts. And, and like I said, just as you feel led, just come forward and I invite you to light a candle symbolizing that this morning.